All right, so um, test is going to be tomorrow. Yes. Okay. We are, um, I've written it, it's not going to be too bad. Okay. So um, as long as, as long as you guys, um, you know, are prepared for it. And as long as you can, um, like, mainly the big thing on the exam, okay, is going to be able to tell me uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, or Colossians. So there will be questions like, um, which of these books tells you to think of demonic powers as being up? That would be Ephesians. Which of these books is combating the Judaizer heresy? Where like circumcision is how you get saved, and that would be Galatians. Um, which of these books um, is, is there a rivalry between Syndiki and Iodia that Paul's addressing? That would be Philippians. Um, which of these books is this really weird thing about Judaism and Gnosticism, which have been married, and now that's a problem, and that's Colossians. Um, and so, um, you know, it, it's going to be kind of big stuff like that. I have cookies. This is wonderful. Um, but uh, we um, really, um, I, I, think, I think it's going to be a pretty simple exam for you guys. So um, we do want to talk about Colossians a little bit. Um, Colossians, again, it, it's always a difficult book because whereas there are all of these little clues in Paul's other letters about, like, why was this written? What is the problem? Um, Colossians, or, or like Philippians, just kind of, like, comes out and says what the problem is, right? Um, Colossians doesn't really just come out and say it to you, um, but there are some hints, and um, they're, they're just a little bit few and far between. So, um, basically, what I'm going to do is go back to what we did on Friday, and I'm going to present kind of big picture what I think the problem in Colossae is. And then we're going to look at the first couple chapters of Colossians, and I'm going to kind of point out some places where um, Paul seems like he's combating this issue. So, um, you know, we uh, kind of looking at the details of the book and what is Paul really concerned with saying can give us an idea of what exactly is going on here. And um, what, uh, um, and, and then we'll, we'll kind of look at evidence for it. So, um, the problem at Colossae is that there has been this intersection between Gnosticism and a weird form of Judaism, I think. And the people, at, at the, the Christians at Colossae are now very tempted to get on board with this. So review really quickly. Gnosticism was the belief that there is one God and he didn't really like purposefully create the world. There were these emanations that he gave off. He was kind of like so full of life that he just kind of like gave off life from himself. And then um, the beings that are really close to him, that would be like your angels. And they're really good spiritual beings. All right. They're, they're still spirit rather than matter. And they're, you know, basically good. But as you get further away from God, um, the, the beings that emanate off of him start looking less and less like him. And you finally wind up with one being called the Demiurge. And, and what does Demiurge mean? Creator. Creator. All right. So this is the guy that actually creates the physical world, everything that you see, touch, taste, smell, and feel. All right. Uh, the Demiurge creates 
the physical world. Um, the Demiurge um, also creates um, our bodies. So in Gnosticism, the body is bad. It's the creation of the Demiurge. Um, and so it is something that you do not like. But um, according to Gnosticism, you're not just a body. You also have a soul. And uh, this soul is good, and it is part of these emanations that have come off from God. And your goal in Gnosticism is to escape your bodily prison and allow your soul to ascend back up to God. And to do that, you need this special type of hidden knowledge given to only the select few, which is called Gnosis. You guys remember covering that? All right. So, what happens is Gnosticism is a pretty old philosophy by the time we get to the New Testament. It's been around for a few centuries. And Gnosticism very, very rarely exists by itself. Um, Think of it kind of like a leech or a parasite. Gnosticism thrives in being able to attach to a different system of thought. All right? Um, there, there aren't really pure Gnostics out there. Whenever you are interacting with a Gnostic in the ancient world, you'll have like Greco-Roman Gnostics, which try to take this and then apply it to Greek and Roman religion. Or you're going to have Platonic Gnostics, which try to take this system of thought and kind of marry it to Plato's philosophy. And then you get people who are Gnostic Christians, and they try to take this and put it on Scripture, which we've talked about a little bit, how they're going to try to do that. But you also have Jewish Gnostics. And the Jewish Gnostics are, like, really crazy. Really, really, really crazy. Because the Jewish Gnostics, um, as they read the Old Testament, um, the, the Jewish Gnostics are going to see the Demiurge as, who do you think? Satan, all right? And um, what the um, Jewish Gnostics believe is it's not just Satan, but you also have these different demonic powers as well. And the Jewish Gnostics, at least one group of them, gets pretty nervous about this. And they, um, they don't like the idea that there's like this evil demiurge out there. They don't like the idea that it's not just an evil demiurge, but there's also like all of these other demonic powers, and they're kind of scared by this. And so, as I was telling you um, on Friday, um, there's one school of Jewish thought that in order to combat this, they do something really bizarre. There's one really, really big evil power, and these guys are kind of concerned with fighting each other, but then there's these other evil demonic powers, and, you know, the good news is God has, and they're, they're less than Satan, they're less powerful than Satan, and God also has, like, these kind of, like, less powerful beings on his side, too, angels, and so, uh, you know, the, the angels and demons are fighting each other, but if you're very scared of demons, then it would make sense that you get really obsessed with Keeping angels nearby. Angels. And trying to keep them nearby. 
So um, kind of two ways that this works in um, this school of Judaism. It's called Kabbat Judaism. And, and kind of two ways that it works are you worship angels and then the angels feel very happy with you because you've been worshiping them and you've been like, whoa, you are such a great angel. I love you. And then they're like, yeah, I'm going to hang out with this guy. And then if he's hanging out with you, then the demons will stay away. The other way is that sometimes you try to like enslave angels. <coughs> And that's very, very complicated how exactly they go about trying to do that. Um, but that, that happens too. So in Colossians, it seems like this is the problem that's starting to happen in the church. There is this kind of Gnostic Jewish ideology that is creeping into the church at Colossae. And the Christians at Colossae are starting to get caught up with this. So, um, a few different issues that Paul's going to have to address. Number one, um, according to Gnosticism, who made the world? The Demiurge. The Demiurge. According to Christianity, who made the world? God. God through Christ did. So, um, the first thing that Paul's going to have to do is argue for Jesus' role in creation. That's something he's going to have to do. Um, because Gnostics believe that um, bodies are bad, what do they always deny? That Jesus had a body. That Jesus had a body, the incarnation. So he's going to have to argue for Jesus' incarnation. Uh, according to Gnosticism, you get saved how? Through Gnosis. Through Gnosis, which is the secret knowledge that's given to everyone. Only the select few who are worthy. So um, Paul's going to have to fight against um, this idea of gnosis. Um, because does gnosis really go well with the idea that you're saved by grace through faith? No. Not really. So he's going to have to fight against that. And then he's also going to have to fight against, um, you know, um, fear of demons Flash, um, angel obsession. Are angels good? Yes. Are you glad angels exist? Yes. Angels are pretty, you know, pretty cool. They're pretty. They're pretty good. Um, are you supposed to worship them? No. What do angels do every time someone worships them in the Bible? Stop it! Nope. Don't worship. Me. Should you try to enslave an angel? No. No. Definitely not. Yeah, that would be a bad thing. And then another thing that Paul's going to have to deal with, too, is, um, uh, you know, Gnosticism, because it has a low view of the body, it promotes one of two things. It either promotes um, rigorous, unhealthy self-denial. Is self-denial a good thing? In moderation. In moderation, right? Jesus even says, take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. But this rigorous self-denial, he's going to maybe have to fight against that. And then also, um, Gnosticism sometimes is like, you know, the body doesn't matter, so have fun. Um, the, the more libertine um, type of idea. So these are some things that he's going to have to fight against in Colossians. So um, I want to open with you guys and um, read a few passages where we see him do that, which I think throws support behind the idea that the this really is the issue at Colossae. Faith, you had a question? Yeah, can I use that? Yeah. So look at Colossians 1, 
Uh, we'll pick up in verse 15. Ready? We try so hard with her. We really do. So, but I can't be mean to her because she's been coming to my Sunday school class. So she heard some very interesting things yesterday. Would you like to share? What interesting thing did you learn yesterday? I don't want to share. Yes, Lily. You should make her. So we, um, we had to talk about some... Oh, that's not good. I should be more careful with that. You guys never have that problem, do you? No. Well, you explain the big words. Yeah. Well, good. All right, let's. Do you explain them once? But I'm usually not here when you explain the big words. That sounds. That sounds like a you problem. No, I'm just kidding. I try to review every once in a while and be like, and by the way, remember that this means this. But, um, you know, you're, you're, so. you're good about All right, so let's, uh, let's look at Colossians. What? What? Oh, um, at the very end, so we, we talked about how St. Nicholas um, helped set the date of Easter, but he didn't punch heretics. Um, Santa Claus didn't punch heretics. We, we talked about self-castration, and um, that was a joy. She didn't know what that meant. She was, she was, she was positive. Yeah. Um, she is now. Trinitarian <laughs> theology. So, um, yeah. So we covered the whole gambit. It was, it was great. So let's, uh, let's do Colossians. Um, chapter 1, verse 15. Um, Paul is talking about Jesus here. And he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were... In heaven and and then it's things visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Why is Paul making such a big deal about that? Because they think the demiurge made things. Yeah. And he's wanting to say Jesus created everything. Uh, both in heaven and on earth. Invisible things, spiritual things, but also things that are visible. He goes on in verse 18. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Um, we'll skip down to... Skip down to chapter 2, verse 1. Ready? For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. 
For though I'm absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Can you catch what Paul's doing in that text? There are mysteries and there is treasures of wisdom and knowledge, but where is it found? In the spirit. Uh-uh. In the person of Christ. In the person of Christ. So, what is Paul doing there? Yeah, he's fighting against Gnosis. If you want knowledge that leads to salvation, then you look to the person of Christ. And does Jesus offer himself to only the select few and the worthy? He, he said, I came to um, seek and save those that were lost. He said, those who are well have no need of a physician. Those who are sick do. Basically, his point there is he came to save sinners. So who's qualified to receive his salvation? Sinners. So as long as you're a sinner, you're qualified to receive Christ. So he's fighting against this gnosis idea that salvation is only for the select few, for the, um, for the worthy. Um, skipping down to verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Don't pay attention to this philosophy and empty deceit. Pay attention to Christ. So again, pushing against Gnosis there. The term elemental spirits... um, a lot of people think that that is like a reference to like demonic powers. I think that the elemental spirits are referring to good angels. Um, I think that um, this is a, a reference to uh, people who are trying to engage in angel worship. And I'll tell you why whenever we get a little bit further into chapter two, because further into chapter two, Paul's going to use the phrase angel worship. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but but in these verses we just read, he's pushing Gnosis as well. Someone read verse 9. For in him the, full, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Yeah, what's he doing right there? Jesus is fully God and fully man. Yeah, and the fullness of deity dwells not just spiritually in Christ, but... Bodily, incarnation. Yeah, incarnation. Um, let's see. Let's jump down to verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Um, What type of people would have been giving the uh, Christians in Colossae a really hard time about what you're eating, what you're drinking uh, what days you're celebrating as holy. So we're starting to hear kind of not just a Gnostic influence, but a Jewish one too. And Paul makes a really interesting uh, point. He says, you know, the food laws, the festivals, those things were a shadow that were pointing forward to Christ, but the substance is in Christ. So what would that mean? What would that mean about the food laws and the holy days? Yeah, Christ has come now, so so the shadow has passed away, the substance is here. 
Um, verse 18, he keeps going, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. What is asceticism? My translation says false humility. <coughs> That's not a very good translation this time around. Yeah. Anybody know what asceticism is? It can. Um, Asceticism is this really, really, really rigorous discipline of your body. So basically, if you are engaging in asceticism, then your body starts telling you, I want something or I need something, and you tell it no. So um, asceticism in moderation can be a good thing. Because, can you think of uh, any place where Jesus tells us to practice something that sounds like asceticism? Fasting? Yes. Good job, Ashley. I heard you say it first. Um, so, so, yeah, fasting would, would be one, right? Like, Jesus says for a period of time, uh, you know, maybe go without food and dedicate yourself to prayer. Um, and, and so there are moments where in the Christian life it's good to say no to bodily passions and desires. But this is always with, it's a temporal thing. What does temporal mean? Not forever. Yeah, not forever, all right? And the effects of it are also temporal, not forever, right? If you fast for one day, is that probably going to kill you? No. No. If you fast for like a week, are you gonna, is your body going to be affected by that? Mm-hmm. Like long-term, yeah. So, um, yeah, so what Paul is fighting against here is this really rigorous type of asceticism, which sometimes can come with Gnosticism, especially types of Gnosticism very obsessed with Jewish law, right? So we see him fight against that. So he says, let no one disqual- disqualify you insisting on asceticism and the... Ah, there we go. Don't worship angels. And this kind of, we can hear this in chapter one as well, whenever it says that Jesus created all things, even invisible things, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. Jesus created the angelic powers, so he's higher than the angelic powers. So should you worship angels? No, you should worship Jesus. Um. Going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by the sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. Verse 20, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you're still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So we hear that Paul in these chapters is really kind of hitting on all of these issues. Uh, So it seems like the problem in Colossae is some sort of really weird um, Jewish Gnosticism that also is obsessed with worshiping angels in order to you know, kind of like protect yourself or something like that. So um, that's what's going on in Colossians. Um, Because we don't have a ton of time and we're wanting to save time for Hebrews and Revelation, 
Uh, that's about all we're going to say on Colossians, but you guys have also read this book. I know it's been a little while, but as you read Colossians, was there anything else that you had questions about or that was weird or that stuck out to you? Yeah. This is actually a question about Cabot. Uh, is it Caliban? What was the type of Jewishness that's basically angel Jewishness? Kabat. Kabat. Okay. So in Kabat Judaism, do you also capture demons, or can it only work on angels? I think just angels. You don't think I don't. You wouldn't want to do that with a demon. Well, I mean, I'm just thinking of like creating cursed objects because like. Yeah, you wouldn't want to do that. You would want to exercise, and and exorcism is really big in Kabat Judaism. Um, there's a scene um, in Ephesus in the book of Acts where there are seven Jews that try to cast out a demon, and they're probably engaged in some form of Kabat Judaism, and it does not work. And the demon beats them up, rips their clothes off, and then chases them out of the house naked. And the... Uh, the Jews go to the demon and say, we cast you out in the name of Jesus and in the name of Paul. And the demon looks at him and goes, I know who Jesus is. I've heard of this Paul guy. Who are you? And, and, and things go very badly for them in that, in that scene. But um, yeah, um, exorcism for the, um, for the demons, um, somehow trying to keep an angel kind of like linked to you for, for, for angelic figures. So have like multiple angels come on person like, mm-hmm. so like yeah, so we're over there. but like um can anyone else like hire angels so let's say for example okay can capable I, I I don't know if you can do it like that it's not pokemon right okay. it's um it, it's it's um, it's different than that. Um, uh, what I do know is that they're called magicians. So, and they, they no, the people, and um, they call their books books of magic. And um, so, I mean, you can you can hear even from the context of like Old Testament law that like really rigorous Jewish people would look at this and say it's witchcraft, right? Um, and, um, some of those magic books, um, I mean, they were lost, they were burned, right? Um, some of them have been uncovered in the past couple of decades and people are trying to do scholarly works on them to give us a broader understanding of what this type of Judaism did and tried to accomplish. Um, I'm not interested enough to really dive into that too much, but, um, there was an article that I did read in the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society that tried to argue that this was the backdrop for a few statements in Colossians and Jude. And I found it pretty compelling. So, um, like, to the point that Jude seems like he actually quotes one of the magic books to be like, this is bad. Um, But, like, there's a sentence in Jude that almost seems like it's taken straight out of one of the main ones. So, and, and again, Jude's not, like, saying... I'm endorsing this. He's saying people try to do this and it's wicked, right? So, um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting, interesting stuff. Um, Something that I do want to point out in chapter four, now that I'm thinking about it, um, verse nine, 
there's a guy mentioned that Paul is sending greetings to. Chapter 4, verse 9, who is it? Onesimus. That's an important fella. Onesimus is a very, very important fellow. Um, because Onesimus is going to be the main character of a book that we read pretty soon. Called Philemon. Book of Philemon um, centers on, uh, on, 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 this, uh, on this Onesimus guy. Um, another thing that's kind of interesting is um, in verse 10... Um, it says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you've received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him, and Jesus, who is called Justice. So Paul is with a group of people, Aristarchus, Justice, and Mark, and they send greetings to the church at Colossae along with Paul. Um, what do you know about Mark and Paul? Yeah, Paul's main missionary buddy was Barnabas. And Barnabas says, hey, I want to bring my cousin Mark along. And Mark comes on a missionary journey. And what does he do? Yeah, he quits. And then um, another missionary journey gets started. And Barnabas says, hey, I know he flaked last time, but let's give him a second shot. And Paul says what? No. no. And then what do Paul and Barnabas do? Separate. They separate. Um, what does uh, Colossians 4.10 tell you about Paul and Mark, though? Or Paul's in prison and Mark's at least visiting him right so so either they're in prison together or mark is visiting paul in prison but it's proof that they reconciled they're back on good terms they're working together again so um could paul forgive could he take his own advice and forgive yeah so um you know this is an important text i think um and then here's a really interesting bit of colossians um he he talks about aristarchus mark and justice. And in verse 11, he says, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And they've been a great comfort to me. So out of the people with him, he mentions three guys who are circumcised, which means three guys who are what? Jewish. Jewish. He goes on in verse 12, and he's going to start talking about other people who are with him. And we should assume that all of them are what? Good. Um, Epiphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he's worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. That's Luke, the beloved physician. That's Luke that writes Luke and Acts, and he is listed among the what? Gentiles. Yeah. So, guy who writes about a quarter, about a fifth, I guess, of the New Testament is a? Gentile. Gentile according to this text. Um, there are some arguments being made in scholarship right now trying to say that Luke is Jewish, 
because his gospel, especially the first couple chapters, um, talk a lot about the temple and the priesthood, and it's quoting the Old Testament all the time. Um, so some people say for Luke to know the Old Testament that well, he would have needed to be Jewish and in the synagogue. I have a different theory. I think Luke knows the Old Testament really, really well, enough that he can quote it and reference it like crazy. Um, but I don't think he learned it growing up in the temple and synagogue. Where do you think he maybe learned it? He doesn't spend time with Jesus, right? He's a yeah, I that. Yeah. From Matthew, Mark, who does he hang out with all the time? Paul. Paul. I think I think he uh, I think he gets a lot of his information from Paul. Um, I think that Luke's gospel, um, if we were to go back and read it after we read Paul, I think I would be able to point out to you places where you can see Paul's influence. In, in Luke's account. Also, um, Luke's account, he, he admits he's not an eyewitness, but he interviews a lot of eyewitnesses, and all of the eyewitnesses he interviews are all Jewish. So as he's talking to these people, um, and he's saying, um, hey, tell me what you know about Jesus' life, and they're telling him, I mean, it, it makes sense that Luke would probably pause at some points and say, why on earth did he do that? The person says, well, according to the law, or in the Old Testament, there's this story, and I think Jesus was linking himself to that. Or I think that he has help there. Um, verse 14 um, mentions Luke, the beloved physician, and also one other person at the very end. What's that guy's name? Demas. Yeah, remember him. Demas is listed with a gospel writer in this verse as someone who has labored for the Lord alongside Paul. Demas strike you as a as a good guy? I mean, he you look at who he's listed with and it it seems like he's in good company, right? Demas is going to break Paul's heart. Bad. Bad, bad, bad. You guys want to see where? You want me to go ahead and tell you? Um Let's see here. Second Timothy is the last book Paul writes. And as we read Second Timothy, you'll hear that Paul sounds very sad, like he's coming to the end of his life, and a lot of stuff is just going really poorly. And um, the tone is really heavy. And it's kind of sorrowful. And he's telling Timothy, I'm about to die. I know I've run my race well. Um, but he, he's, he's telling Timothy, you need to be prepared for a lot of hardship. Um, by this point, Paul's experienced a lot of hardship. And um, somebody read 2 Timothy 4, verse 10. Yeah, that's good. He deserts Paul. Paul's in prison, and uh, nobody is really there to take care of Paul except for Demas and Luke, who are listed together in Colossians, right? So there's nobody left to really take care of Paul. Um, maybe all of them have had to be called away. Maybe some of them have had to go on different missionary journeys. And so Luke and Demas are the two people who are caring for Paul. And Demas decides to leave, and it's not to go serve the Lord on mission. It's because he's what? 
Yeah. So he leaves. And just Luke is there to take care of Paul at the end. So, um, you know, kind of a kind of a sad story. One of these really strong ministers that works alongside Paul uh, really, uh, you know, kind of kind of breaks his heart right at the very end of his life. Um, we get an idea of how human Paul is from that, I think. So 